My name is Brianna, and with me on the line, she once posted her cousin's credit card information on Reddit in retaliation for a perceived slight. It's my sister, Marissa. That bench totally deserved it. <laughs> it's like, I loved Eleanor's, like, response to that, like, being like, uh, reminded of that. I did that. <laughs> and, yeah. and then she realizes that, you know, she's not supposed to find that funny anymore and kind of straightens up, but it... I, I love They that. really are. I just have to reiterate my analogy that they are like, basically like George Clooney and Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> they kind of are. And we will get to that, I think, a little bit more later on in spoiler space, because there is a little bit from Mike Schur that might be interesting on that. Uh, but in the meantime, um, let's, uh, let's start out with some housekeeping before we get into the recap, because I did notice in re-listening to a couple of the more recent episodes that we didn't remind our listeners where they can find us outside of this show. People might want to do that. So um, we are on iTunes under The Good Play, our name. Uh, we are on Twitter at, uh, the, at The Good Play Pod. And we are on Facebook at The Good Play. So come chat with us. We also have a new sort of like little miniature website. And the URL for that is goodplay.cast.rocks. Look at that. So many ways to find us. You do not need to get on a trolley to find us. You can just go on the internet. Why don't we... We'll do a recap of the episode, and then we've got some discussion and some questions. Uh, We've got an article roundup, and uh, then we've got a little bit of spoiler space. So... Do you want to tackle this recap or should I? You were just talking about how my my episode notes are always too long. <laughs> yeah, I think I have to be the one to um, to take it just so that we aren't here for the next um, 700 hours. But don't you want to spend the next 700 hours with me? <laughs> I need to spend at least some portion of the next 700 hours sleeping. That's Not fair. Lie. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I haven't had eight hours of sleep in a row in over a year. Well, that's what happens when you have a baby. Yeah. Don't have a baby, he's cute. guys. He's he's cute, though. He's he is cute. very cute. <laughs> I think I will, when I get pictures of the two of them in their Halloween costume, I think I will put it on the Good Play Pod uh, Twitter page. Not that it has anything to do with the Good Place, but I just won't be able to resist. Although they are philosophers, not to give too much away about the mm-hmm. subject of the Halloween costumes, but you know. Um, so this episode separates very cleanly into an A plot and a B plot. So instead of jumping back between A and B plots, I'm just going to run through the whole A plot and then the whole B plot. Okay. The A plot is Eleanor, Chidi, and Michael learning about ethics. And the B plot is Jason and Tahani and Janet uh, talking about the Tahani-Jason relationship. So let's okay. start off with subplot A. It begins with Chidi giving ethics lessons to all of them. Uh, He mentions the trolley problem, which is like a pretty famous problem in like contemporary philosophy where um, you are on a speeding trolley and you can't, you're speeding towards five workers 
and you will kill them if you take no action, but you can take an action to switch tracks and instead um, only um, kill one person. And so the question is, do you do that? And there's a lot of variations on the trolley problem. And they're discussing that, and Michael decides instead that what he would do is he would mow down the five people he was already barreling towards while holding out like a large scythe so that he could (laughs) slice the head off the sixth one, to which Chidi makes him Bart Simpson style write people equals good, people equals good on the board ten times. And he goes, why is Uh, it so hard to remember? Yeah, so this is the point where the, the two subplots really split off. So I'm just going to follow Eleanor, Chidi, and Michael uh, for, for the next few minutes here. Chidi is really wrestling with how he is going to actually teach Michael to care about humans at all. Uh, and Eleanor is saying, you know, it's not really your fault. He's not even really a person. He is, what does she say? Something like, he's just a bunch of evil impulses stuffed up the butt of an evil mannequin or something like that. Yes. Which is like a really, it's actually legit, right? Like he actually is a sort of like inchoate force of chaos that has taken human form because of his profession. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's easy to for us to forget that he's not actually human. Yeah, he has a human body. So he's kind of, he's human in some sense, but not in the most important sense. Chidi is like, oh, maybe I could do a rap, uh, basically like a hip hop about <laughs> Kierkegaard. I think, you know, it's meant to be sort of like Hamilton style. And he, and he sort of raps two lines from it and he's adorable. Although, can anyone who speaks French confirm to me that those lines would actually rhyme in French, which is what Chidi is actually supposed to be speaking in like his own head? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we can wave, hand wave that one. Sure. You know, and she really tries to get through to Michael. He he asked Michael to write a paper about Les Mis. And Michael writes this very, like, sophomoric, like the kind of paper that I would have been given an F for when I was in, like, seventh grade. Just like, everyone in this book would go to the bad place. You know, the, the thief goes to the bad place for stealing bread, and the policeman goes to the bad place for chasing somebody, and... The prostitutes go to the bad place because they're French, basically. Well, and he knows for a fact that Victor Hugo is in yes. the bad place. <laughs> and he's scared of the lava monsters, and he says, Sacre bleu, I peed in my pants. Which is Which, a again, great Chini line Again, is supposed to be reading that in French. <laughs> I don't even know how that works. And Chini just sort of says, like, Look, it's not about you. You say that you know that stealing a loaf of bread is negative seventeen points, and stealing a baguette is negative twenty points. Um, but like philosophy is all about questioning these things that you think are absolute fundamentals, and and that you know the trolley problem. You know, Michael says, just give me the answer to the trolley problem, and Chidi says it doesn't have a right answer. That's kind of the point. Chidi says to Michael. You just have to accept that I know more about human ethics than you. And that's when Michael gets this look on his face that is very ominous. <laughs> if you are yes. really paying attention, the little smile that he gets is very telling. And that's when he says, maybe what I really need is uh, for this to be more concrete. And Chidi agrees. And Eleanor is there as well. So Michael instantly drops them into the trolley situation, a simulation of the trolley scenario. Um, Chidi is at the wheel. He's barreling towards five people. And of course he's Chidi. He dithers a little bit and he instantly 
rams into these five people and he is just instantly covered in blood and viscera. (laughs) And I have to admit that I let my four-year-old watch this with me twice. And he said, my favorite part is when Chidi gets all dirty. So that means he didn't (laughs) understand what was going on, which is good. (laughs) He just likes the physical comedy, I guess. Oh, yeah, big time. As does Eleanor, by the way, you may notice. Yes, (laughs) yes. Chidi is, like, instantly traumatized. And then Michael resets and is like, let's do this again. And barrels towards and now this time chitty pulls this lever but guess what the one guy on the other track is his friend with the goofy boots from oh last i season. liked him this was tough <laughs> this is tough to watch i thought it was hilarious <laughs> he he runs down henry with the goofy boots and 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 one of the goofy boots <laughs> covered in blood Aww. like flies into chitty's face Anyway, and and we sort of sort of flash forward to, you know, Chidi's been put through like seven of these or something. And then Michael switches it to the, you know, uh, a similar problem where he's a doctor. He can take out all of Eleanor's organs and give them to five people who would otherwise die. And Chidi says, you know, this is actually sort of easy. You know, I, I can't violate the Hippocratic Oath. That would be unethical. So he says, okay, now you have to explain it to their families. And this little girl comes up and says, Dr. Cheedy, my daddy needs a heart transplant because a bad man hit him with a trolley. <laughs> Cheedy's just like, come on! And that's when Eleanor realizes what I think I had realized maybe a few minutes earlier. So I, give myself, I gave myself a little gold medal for this. That Michael's just uh, forking with them. <laughs> just completely yeah. messing with them. And she just kind of grabs hold of him and is like, you're torturing us again, aren't you? And he's like, uh, busted. Yeah, old habits die hard, but not as hard as those people you crushed with the trolley. Chidi gets really angry and he says, you know, you keep saying that we need you and that if we don't work with you, we're going to be tortured forever. But we're working with you and you're still torturing us. And I'd rather just be tortured than choose it. And kicks Michael out of his class and tells him to get the fork out. It's the first time that Chidi says fork, as far as I know. Yeah, that, that he means business. He does. And then Eleanor and Chidi kind of have like a post-mortem, so to speak. And uh, Chidi's convinced that the only reason that Michael did this is because Michael has like no intention of learning ethics. And um, and Eleanor kind of... The nickel, the nickel drops for Eleanor as to why why Michael was actually doing this. And she goes and sees him and says, look you're pulling an Eleanor that they, they keep, this is the scene where they sort of are again, like kind of broing down about sort of not great things that they have both done in their past, which is pretty like great. The and funny. intro that I gave you. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's saying, look, you feel this class, you're not good at it. It makes you feel small. And so you're lashing out and Michael really resists that. But, you know, Eleanor says, you know, this is 100% on you to make this right. So now we see Michael come to all four of the humans with Janet. And he says, I thought really long and hard. And I'm going to get each of you an opposite torture. And Eleanor says, I think you mean a present. He gives Tahani an enormous diamond, you know, the size of like a baby's head, basically. He gets Jason a Pikachu balloon that he instantly pops. <laughs> <laughs> he gets he gets Eleanor a shrimp uh, dispenser with I want um, that like, sauces. That's disgusting. 
I'm a vegetarian, I so all want, this sounds gross to me. Oh my god, I want that shrimp dispensary. All the, I want it in my house. I I'm, want it. I just want it. He tries to give Chidi a lost work of Kant, but Chidi immediately drops it in the trash and says, you know, you can't buy me. This is not an apology. This is a bribe. And then it's actually really affecting. Um, Michael sort of says in a mocking way, like, oh, what do you want me to say? That, like, class made me feel bad about myself. And now I just, I just, I'm so lost. And Chidi's like, yeah. And then his demeanor immediately switches to, like, just the most contrite, sad, like, oh. And he says the exact same line over again. But this time he actually means it. You know, I just feel so lost and sad. And Chidi says, all right. Why don't you come back to class? Now, we're going to backtrack and talk about the B-plot, which is a lot less interesting and is going to take a lot less time. It's just basically Tahani and Jason are sleeping with each other. Tahani wants to talk to somebody about it, but she doesn't want to actually tell anyone that they're sleeping together. So she figures she can confide in Janet. And Janet says she can... Janet decides to act as Tahani's therapist, despite the fact that she says she's desperately unqualified. Um, So Tahani and Jason end up sort of taking turns on Janet's therapist couch, talking about um, their relationship. You see a lot of like kind of questionable behavior from Tahani in terms of, you know, belittling Jason in kind of upsetting ways. Um, Yeah. She's controlling. Yeah. Through the whole episode, as they have these therapy sessions, Janet starts glitching in worse ways. So first she loses her thumb, and then she spits up a frog. And finally, at the closer of the episode, she... Remind me what exactly happens. So it's a month later. Yeah, it's a month later after the events of the A-plot and most of the B-plot. And uh, they come back to... Janet the two of them and Tahani thanks Janet for all of the work that they've put in together and their relationship is much stronger and Janet says oh I'm very happy for you and then there's like a massive earthquake and then she transports herself to Michael's office Michael genuinely has no idea what's going on and she says I'm a problem I'm glitching I can't stop it and that's basically how the episode ends and she says I think this neighborhood is about to collapse yeah, that's even worse. Yep. Yeah. So it's not just Janet. It's it's the neighborhood itself. And that's the episode. I really did not spend very much time on the B-plot because I found it pretty underwhelming compared to the A-plot, which as far as I'm concerned, we didn't talk about what, how we felt about the episode. I thought this episode was excellent. Yeah, me too. But, but it was excellent. It was excellent because of the A-plot. The B-plot was was pretty pretty par for the course, I think. I don't know. I, I thought the B-plot had some uh, interesting moments, but I think most of them are about Janet's glitchiness, you know? Because I think last episode... Oh, yes. Yeah, last episode we talked about how throughout the course of the episode it became... We haven't had a lot of episodes with this show that are essentially a a sitcom style where there's... You start out in stasis, there's like some crazy inciting incident, a lot of stuff happens, and then everybody ends back, you know, in the place where they started... That was last episode, but this episode, because of the B-plot, we now have an imminent threat to the entire uh, neighborhood. That's exactly what I was thinking. That's exactly what I was thinking, that they have gone back to what I consider to be more of the formula for this show, which is that you don't end in the same place that you started. 
And even I would argue Michael has grown and changed in this episode in a way that he didn't in last episode. Yes. Yeah. So I thought it was a great episode, too. I watched it a few times. Uh, once to take notes, but then a couple of times just for myself, just because I enjoyed it. It was so also so it was so funny. I mean, it was it was I mean, in, in my opinion, the humor was just like a cut above what we've seen the last couple episodes. The moment where <laughs> yes, the moment where uh, after Michael gives this like really heartfelt speech and to to apologize to Chidi and Chidi has invited him back to class and it's just like this really nice beat of the show and you feel very gratified and then Eleanor's over in the corner and she goes whoa nobody eat the mystery flavor it is white chocolate and it is nasty I, I and, and then, she, then and then after she, she says that she's, she keeps eating it I just Kristen Bell that got, I laughed out loud alone in my apartment. I just was laughing and laughing. <laughs> I rewound it. I watched it a couple of times just to rewind, just to watch it again. And you know that was hysterical. And I thought Chidi had a lot of really funny moments in this episode too. The the rap and uh, his reading of Victor Hugo in the Bad Place and a couple his also his really uh, like over the top reactions to the. The trolley the problem yeah. simulation, yeah. By the way, the trolley is labeled both in Chidi's model and in real life, well, the real simulation, as the Ethics Express. <laughs> yeah, it's, that, that makes sense. It has really been Chidi's season so far. I mean, that's that's been my take on it. You know, yeah. the first couple episodes were, were just getting them to this iteration where they are sort of stuck for now. But since they have done that, it has felt to me like it's really been Chidi's season. And even in the scene setting episodes at the beginning of the season, um, you know, Chidi got way more of a subplot in that first episode with Angelique and um, the other woman than he really got in a lot of the first season. Yeah. We were so Eleanor centric for the first season. And I love Eleanor. That was great, but now we're like we're really zeroing in on Chidi in a way that is like really satisfying to me as a viewer. Yeah, and as I agree. his wife, <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> united in holy matrimony. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think, and that I think that is also an interesting comparison to some other sitcoms where you start out with a point of view character and then it becomes about everybody else the more you get into it. I think the first one that pops into my head is New Girl, uh, which is on Fox. And the first, I mean, it's named after the girl of the show, but after, you know, the first season, it really did become an ensemble show. And, you know, much to the I think that really helped the show and it helps your possibilities for all of these different characters to have more of a showing uh, during the their time on screen. It helps them to have like more of a backstory and everything because it gives you all these different directions that you can go in. Do we want to talk about what the heck is up with Janet? Yeah, let's start because there because that's, that's where the episode that's ends. maybe the major, yeah, that's the major unresolved question of the episode for sure. But then I want to, I think... I think you and I both want to get into some of the deeper philosophical questions raised by the episode. Yeah. Um, what's up with Janet? Yeah. <laughs> That's just in my notes. What's up with Janet? Question yeah. mark, question mark. 
Right. So my friend Ian, you know, put forward a theory of, you know, maybe the fact that she knows that they are in the bad place is messing with her. And that's very possible because her entire programming is to kind of keep these humans safe and happy. And she kind of can't if they're in the bad place. There's nothing she can do if Sean shows up to kind of take them away or what have you, she's pretty powerless. She can always be rebooted. She can't trust her memories. So that might cause her a lot of stress. Uh, I had an alternate theory that's sort of connected to that, which might be that the good place realizes that she's missing because we've heard Michael say a couple of times that he stole a good place, Janet. Um, And so we don't know how he stole her. Uh, I think we've talked before about, you know, maybe that, like you were saying, Marissa, that, you know, she's just some computer code. So maybe it wasn't, uh, you know, some kind of Ocean's Eleven mission to go steal a good place Janet or anything. But maybe <laughs> there is a record of this Janet supposed to be, uh, you know, that she's supposed to be in a good place neighborhood and she's not. And uh, maybe they're realizing that she's gone and they're trying to get her back and that's causing problems for the bad place neighborhood that she's in. So I think that's a, if this were like a novel, I would say that that's a very real possibility. I think given what the TV show is doing right now and the fact that we're probably not going to see the real good place for a while, I'm not, and this thing with Janice seems like it has to be resolved next week or the week after. Otherwise, you know, the neighborhood's going to tear itself apart. I'm not sure of how plausible it is. Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say, my my, uh, my other theory is that given when all of these glitches happen, they all happen, of course, in the course of her giving Jason and Tahani some couples counseling that seems to work for them. And so my other theory, and I think this is probably the most obvious one, is that uh, her repressed memories are bubbling up of her being married to Jason and being in love with him. And they are causing... I think it's overstating it somewhat to say that she was in love with him. Well... But, okay. Sure. Um, But they were married and they did have a relationship. And she did, you know, initiate a ride-or-die protocol for him. So I think in in Janet terms, that would be saying that she was in love with him, right? Well... There was something between them. It's hard to exactly qualify what that was, but yeah. there's some. It, there was something between them. Yeah, I so. actually think the most obvious explanation is the explanation she kind of gives herself, which is that she's acting in ways she was not programmed for, uh, and that is what is causing. So it might be a combination of have being the most advanced Janet in the universe, and also acting in ways that she wasn't strictly programmed for might have caused her to, maybe it's like some sort of Pokemon. She's evolving into the (laughs) next thing she can become. Maybe we're going to reach the Janet singularity or whatever you said the other week about how there's like, yeah, like Janet Janet is God and Ur Janet. Yeah. That'd be pretty amazing. An all powerful Janet. Yeah, Yeah. That would be a little weird to pull out at this point in the series, but um this whole series is a bunch of weird points <laughs> yes <laughs> but i think i think either your explanation about the sort of it's somewhere deep down still being 
still, I don't want to say still being in love with Jason, but still having... Attached to Jason. Thank you. Still being attached to Jason or the fact that she's literally not supposed to be somebody's marriage counselor. Yeah. I liked, I mean, and Darcy Carden, I I think she's the MVP like every single week, Uh, but she does a great job in this episode of sort of, you know, when Tahani comes to her and says, you you know, you're the same thing as a therapist, right? And she goes, no, I'm not. And she sort of explains, you know, she's like, a therapist is trained to deal with all ranges of human emotion. I am, what does she say? She says, like, I'm a boundless void or something like that. No, no, she says, I, you know, I'm the, I'm the vessel for all knowledge of the universe. Yeah. Um, but, but she's very clear on the fact that you know, I think it's interesting that humans treat her like a human, even though she's not a human, which could the same thing could be said for Michael, right? They look at Janet and they see a human body and they're like, oh, well, you you, you can fill this role for me. And I think we've seen the same thing with, with Michael. I don't think it's possible for human beings to see something that looks human and mostly acts human and not treat that like it's human. I don't I don't think that we are wired to do anything differently. And I think that's because human beings are conditioned to take in things that appear to be human and just roll with it. <laughs> There's a, a graphic novelist that I love named Scott McCloud who writes a lot of books about uh, the comics medium. And he talks about, um, you know, different styles of drawing and how basically two dots and a line can be interpreted as a face because human beings are coded to find humanity in like anything that sort of has the symmetry of a face. And so I think that's a maybe another way to look at it. I mean, we it. also anthropomorphize every possible creature we can. Yeah. You know, there was that really famous Ikea ad about the woman who throws out a lamp and we see the lamp kind of... It's not, it doesn't have eyes and, and a mouth and it's not CGI. It's just a lamp, but it's kind of hunched over and it's in the rain. And the punchline of the ad is some guy being like, you feel sorry for this lamp, but you shouldn't because it's just a lamp. And now the lady has a better lamp. Uh, <laughs> what? But it I've is never like, that's... seen this ad before. <laughs> I'll just send it to you. We, we are constantly trying to assign humanity to, you know, everything that... Is not, you, that is not even close to being us. Well, it's the it's the reason why in every Disney movie you have like the rug in Aladdin or the ocean in Moana or all the you know all of the anthropomorphized creatures in all these different uh, movies. Yeah, we can't function. It's going to be really interesting if we ever like actually make first contact with another alien species because. Um, I really, we're not going to have any idea how to deal with the fact that these are going to be creatures who are like sentient, but don't necessarily have human emotions and human logic and things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we have Janet and we have Michael who are, they appear human. They're not human, but you know, our, our four humans, our quartet cannot help themselves. They're going to treat them like humans pretty much all the time. Yeah. And it's interesting, I think, to just as the quartet of humans can't help but treat Janet and Michael like people, Janet and Michael are becoming more like people as time goes on, right? This is the most 
emotionally and mentally advanced Janet that ever was because she's been rebooted so many times. And Michael is, you know, I I think he showed a real range of human emotions in this episode that I didn't even really know he was capable of. Yeah, I mean, you have to decide for yourself whether you think his apology at the end was sincere. I felt it was sincere. Yeah, A-plus acting for Ted Danson always, but I think especially in this episode. Yeah, I mean... Ted Danson to me was always sort of like, oh, that kind of goofy sitcom, you know, rom-com, whatever. You know, he was on Becker, he was on Cheers, Three Men and a Baby. Like, he's just an affable guy with great hair and, you know, a nice smile. And, um, you know, I never, I can't say I ever thought much of his acting abilities, but he was killing it this episode. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Do we want to get into a little bit more of sort of the larger philosophical question here? Because I think we've sort of started dipping our toes into it. Yeah, why don't you kind of set it up? Yeah, I'm not even sure if I can articulate this correctly because I I am not a philosopher. Shocking to everyone I know. Um, But, you know, the... The conceit of the episode that they are learning about the trolley problem and Chidi thinks that it's sort of, it. he gets some level of, he thinks it's fun uh, to sort of think about this from a theoretical perspective and it becomes less fun uh, when he sort of has to live it out. Uh, brought to me... To say the least. Yeah. Um, brought to my mind two different things that I think are related um but the first is that when Chidi says uh what does he say I'd rather I'd rather be tortured than choose it uh that's right isn't that a isn't that just sort of the the theme of the entire show the good place right (laughs) yeah he's actively participating in a deception um and he's still being tortured but it's sort of the whole thing is a trolley problem right there there's a line in um i'm I'm sort of tripping over myself here but there's a line in the article roundup which i'll just uh i think it goes in nicely here uh from the av club uh chidi wrestles with the trolley problem on a brilliant episode of the good place uh And the quote is, Chidi doesn't mention one of the most central elements of the trolley problem is that by choosing to sacrifice the one person, you are making a choice to participate in whatever sick or at least unknowable game put you at the controls of the trolley. But by choosing to interfere, you are complicit in recognizing the moral authority of the game to be played in the first place. And I think that what I liked about that quote and what I liked about this episode and what I liked about the the fact that he you know, Chidi has that line is that the whole conceit of this show is a trolley problem for them. That means, right? Because they were a part of somebody else's game. And now they realize that there's a game being played and they're choosing to take a side rather than to just say, okay, whatever happens, happens. Right. Yeah. Um, I kind of want this to be fleshed out a little bit more. And I feel like there's a lot here possibly, but that I'm maybe not um, grasping all of the aspects of it. The thing that comes to me most clearly is sort of their interactions with the medium place. That, that always was sort of, you know, the two times that we actually saw them go there and choose to come back. 
that did have the feel of like a sort of a false, um, you know, especially the first time, you know, it was like, you know, if you go back, then you have to be tortured for eternity. You know, this is back when they thought it was the good place. Yeah. If you go back, you have to be tortured for eternity. But if you stay in this place that is just kind of okay, then your friends will be tortured for eternity. But if you go back, then you're tortured for eternity and your friends get to be in a great place. You know, so like utilitarianism says that's the correct thing. You right, know, like right. that that's like a pretty straightforward sort of trolley-esque problem there that they face at the end of season one. Yeah. Yeah, and and this one I think, and it's all getting more complicated because I think as as Chidi says early on in the episode when he's explaining uh, the Charlie problem to them at the beginning, um, they each kind of have their own way that they would handle it. You talked about Michael's, which was to murder everyone, but Tahani and Eleanor both say sacrifice the one person to save uh, the five, and Chidi says, okay, well let's put this into different terms and what if you knew the people right and that goes back to you know what you pointed out marissa about the trolley problem that they sort of face at the end of the last season right they know these people now so it's it's harder for them to walk away and i and i would say the same thing for the very last episode last season where we find out the twist before we find out the twist um and then also you know at the beginning of this season when Michael says, you know, lays it out to them what's happening. You know, they now have to reckon with the fact that they are they are choosing to move the the lever on the trolley, right? They are choosing to deceive a bunch of demons with the help of another demon to That's a little racist. Yeah, it's a little racist. Possibly to save themselves, though we don't actually know, but it's sort of like the lesser they're doing like the lesser of two evils kinds of things. And and I would also argue that Eleanor faced you know, when she almost walked out the the other episode, right? When when Michael's trying to convince them to stick around and he says it's got to be all of you or none of you. She, you know, she faces that's mm. a trolley problem for her too. So I think this episode, one of the reasons why I liked it so much was that it really was a great distillation of what they've sort of been going through since they became aware of, even before they became aware of their situation, but I think especially afterwards. It does feel to me like, I, I liked that quote that you read from the AV Club, yeah. but there's something about, you know, they're complicit in acknowledging the moral authority. Well, I mean, are they, they don't have very much choice. I mean, it's like, Oh boy, now I gotta go back to heavy town again. But it's like saying that everybody who's a citizen of country N is complicit whenever country, you know, the government of country N does something bad. Which is, it can be a helpful thing to say in terms of sort of chivying people to action. But I don't know how true or correct it is because people need citizenship somewhere in order to function in the world and you know have a place to live and food to eat you know in order to keep themselves and their families alive they need to have a country that they live in so even if you don't feel comfortable with the with the things that country n is doing if you were born in country n and that's where your spouse and family and children are to say that you're complicit 
I would I, I don't like to say people are complicit in things unless they have a clear alternative. And maybe that's just my own sort of leanings, but like um I don't I, yeah, I don't like accusing huge groups of people of being complicit in things that they really have no choice about. And I kind of feel the same way here where it's like are the is the quartet complicit in whatever sort of machinations are going on in in their little neighborhood well maybe but I, what choice do they have really they 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 kind they don't have one i mean their their choice such as it is would be to have their memories wiped again and then speaking of nietzsche's eternal recurrence you know they would find it out again at some point eventually they would and then they would be sent to real hell I, I mean, yeah. but I think that's the, but it, it, that in and of itself is sort of the point, right? That the, the point that I got from this episode is that Chidi in a way, right. Says that he knows more about human ethics than Michael does or any of the other people do or whatever, but he knows about them in theory because he spent his life studying them. He's very bad at actually making real life decisions. So I think what you're hitting on is the difference between a theoretical issue and like someone's lived experience and how you apply ethics in real life. Yes. yes so I think correct. I think we've learned from even watching this show that, you know, those two things are, are very, very, very different. I do find thought experiments to often be like a helpful clarifying thing and and if you actually read about the trolley problem so i never again i never took philosophy i was um too busy studying math yeah i was well i mean i guess i could have taken it as my humanities or something but i didn't i took shakespeare instead chidi kills five shakespeare's in this episode <laughs> to save one santa, santa claus. claus which i was like santa claus isn't even real like i mean i know none nothing real, i know nothing none of this is real but william shakespeare is presumably a real person at one point. But he's also dead. He's also dead. That's fair. I don't know. I don't know how. It, I think that was just that was just sort of a joke. Right? Yeah. But yeah. Like, um, so my my sophomore year roommate took, I think she actually was a philosophy major, come to think of it. And she did like read me through some of the trolley pro- problems. And it is really interesting because it gives you, when you get into it more, it gives you more of an insight into human decision making. So the, the classic... So, so the the baseline trolley problem is the one that Chidi outlines, but then there is a there is a, a slight tweak, and it's not as far afield as the doctor one. The slight tweak is you see a trolley barreling down the tracks. There's no driver. Okay, so this thing has gone completely rogue, and it's about to strike five people working on the track. You are standing up on a bridge. You're watching this happen from you know fifty or hundred feet away, uh, up in the air. There is a very fat person standing in front of you. Do you push that person down onto the track to stop the trolley from killing the other five people? So most people, when you ask them the first question, the one that Chidi puts forth, they say, yeah, I have to switch tracks and I have to kill the one person instead of the five because that's sort of, it's, you know, it's terrible to lose a life, but um, it's more terrible to lose five lives. But most people cannot bring themselves to say, yes, I would push a very fat person onto the tracks to save five people. It's the exact same number of lives. 
but there's something about the act of pushing a human being off of a bridge versus hitting a switch that people cannot stomach. I get that. I totally get that. And I actually think this this brings me to like my second thing that made me think more about this episode and also sort of the broader theme of the show, uh, which is the more complicated version of the trolley problem, which in in the world of the episode was the doctor scenario where Chidi was the doctor and he had to um, not sacrifice or choose whether or not to sacrifice Eleanor. And he doesn't. And before I get into my thing, I will say I loved that moment where, where Kristen Bell says, I'm your hottest friend. Wait, no, that's Dahani. I'm your nicest friend. Wait, no, that's Jason. I'm your friend. <laughs> she, you know, she, <laughs> she's really, she, Eleanor's very self-aware. Um, but when, Chidi tries to say, well, that's very simple. It's the Hippocratic Oath. You know, I'm not going to do any harm. I'm, I'm not going to sacrifice Eleanor to save these people. And then uh, Michael says, okay, well, you got to tell their families. It brought me back to the very first episode of our podcast where we were talking about um, the worldview of the show and how the worldview of the show might be that the end game is to basically recreate Earth in the bad place, right? Because we just have a world full of small tortures every day. Um, And that moment to me, there are really professions that are life and death. There are really moments when a doctor has to come out and say to you, you know, I'm sorry, we, we can't do this. And, and, or I'm sorry, we did everything we could, but, or, you know, there are there are people who have to make those decisions and live out the consequences of those of those decisions uh, in real life. And it just made me think that it might be that that's the direction this show is sort of going in, right? That that's just another example of a way that they are trying to sort of recreate the earth the lived experience on earth in the bad place because that's what he does to torture Chidi, right that's the torture is you have to be a doctor for a day right um (laughs) and i i can imagine for a lot of people watching this show who do have life or death uh jobs you know i am i do not have a life or death job uh because i don't think i could handle it but I know I have friends who are EMTs. I have friends who are humanitarian aid workers. It's it's very, very difficult. It's very difficult. Hell is other people. Daria Morgendorfer. We're back. Daria Morgendorfer. Well, that's... Isn't that Kant? Damn it. Are we doing this again? Well, because he gives him Kant's uh, like lost notebook with a bunch of erotic doodles in it. So, I th- you know, it, but it might be a nod to that, right? You know, if if torture is... I'm just going to make you live out something that people on earth have to deal with every day. I think we might be sort of back to that. It was Sartre, Brianna. It was Sartre. Darn it. How did I, every six episodes, how did I forget in six weeks? I just always think it's Daria. (laughs) That's my, that's me torturing you. Just every six weeks. You'll have to remind me (laughs) who said hell is other people. But I do think 
So the thing that interested me most about this episode was the the section where they are going over his Les Mis essay. Specifically because Michael says, like, look, I know that stealing a loaf of bread is negative 17 points. And this gets into what... So this was something Ian had raised on our Facebook page. How Shouts to Ian. Shouts to Ian. How sometimes when they are doing the scoring in the the good place, the bad place, the afterlife. Sometimes when they're doing the scoring, intention matters, and sometimes it doesn't. And it seems to only matter when your intentions are bad. So stealing a loaf of bread to feed your starving family apparently is no different from stealing a loaf of bread because you just really love bread, even though you have a million dollars and you could totally pay for bread. But Tahani, being a world-famous philanthropist who raised billions of dollars for charity is somehow null and void because her intentions were not pure. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. So your intentions can only hurt you, essentially. There is no such thing as a bad act done with good intentions. I mean, at least from what we've seen, right? Well, what's that saying? The road to hell is paved with good intentions? Yes, that is the saying. So I think... You know, for the writers to have written that scene, it feels to me like they are commenting on the absurdity of the scoring system. Yeah. And sort of it's, it at the end of the day, it's impotence that it cannot determine. And so this is, this, Les Mis is a fictional work, which I have read cover to cover, by the way. I mean, the English translation anyway. I have not. <laughs> So it is possible to read that book and to know everything about those characters because they are fictional. And so they only exist in the, within the covers of that book. So you can make a complete moral assessment of those characters just by dint of being a reader, right? And Jean Valjean is like sort of the epitome of, of a hero, of a, of, a, of a good person, of a virtuous person, someone who... Spends his entire life just trying to help other people and to um, to sort of lift up the, those around him who are in dire straits. And the fact that Michael can read this book. So let's remember that Michael can read a book sort of in, in an instant the way that Janet can. So we're not to assume that he didn't read the book. We're to assume that he read the book, took it all in. And made the assessment that Jean Valjean, of all characters in literature, would go to the bad place? I mean, I think that that is a commentary from the writers of The Good Place on how terrible this whole scoring and ranking system is. Because if you've read, like, a fair cross-section of literature, Jean Valjean is definitely someone who, you know, should theoretically deserve to go to, like, fictional heaven. So that is, so that was the most interesting scene to me. The scene where Michael is just sort of saying like, look, this is how it is. Uh, Everybody's going to hell. And also Victor Hugo went to hell, which like, I don't look, I don't know anything about Victor Hugo. Maybe Victor Hugo like supported the slave trade and, you know, beat his wife or something. But like, maybe he was also just a pretty okay guy (laughs) who is now is, is still being tortured 200 years after his death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I hadn't, I actually hadn't thought about that before because, you know, that, that thing, that 
thing with Tahani where he basically says your motives were corrupt and so it doesn't matter how much good you did in the world. And then to compare that to somebody stealing a, a loaf of bread because they're impoverished and they need to eat. But, you know, it's still negative points no matter what the no matter what, because you stole the bread. I think that's a really interesting point. I think you're probably right that the idea is that this scoring system clearly does not show you the whole picture of a human being, of a human life, right? Um, but it it is interesting to me that Tahani's uh, motives matter when they're bad, but Eleanor's motives, I guess they they mattered at the end of last season when she sort of decided to sacrifice herself. Right. Yeah. She had, well, so she had that little sort of scoring doohickey and they saw that her score went up, but in retrospect, it's impossible to know if that was like a real thing. You know what I mean? Oh, you're yeah. That's a great point because the whole thing was rigged. was kind of right. So it's possible that like, there really is no scoring after you die. And that was just sort of Michael's, game torture with that yeah yeah michael's torture exactly so it's really impossible to know sort of the truth of of that whole situation so i think we kind of have to rule it out as evidence yeah that's another great thing about this show is that the more we learn about the world that they're operating in the more you can go back to season one and go was that real did that is that is that did that happen or I cannot wait for our season one guilty knowledge recap, which we will do, you know, when this season either is over or is on hiatus. Um, yeah. Because we're going to have so much to talk about. Yes, we are. We are. It's going to be impossible for us to pretend like we don't know. Oh, that's why I said it's a guilty knowledge rewatch. We're not going to pretend yeah, yeah. that we are coming to it with fresh eyes. We're going to use the knowledge that we have in season two to apply back to season one. That's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to get into, uh, so you're in article roundup. You already talked about the AV Club review, and I really have to yeah. recommend the AV Clubs. They 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 review episode by episode, and they're excellent reviews. Um, yeah, they do a great job. You want to talk about this um, hilarious BuzzFeed piece? Yes. So my friend Kate sent this to me. Thank you, Kate. Uh, she's the one I I watch the Good Place with every week, uh, and. She found an article on BuzzFeed. Uh, Celeb fans of The Good Place are adorably fighting over who would be BFFs with Kristen Bell. Um, Leslie Jones, for those of you who... I mean, I think everybody knows who Leslie Jones is, but she's on Saturday Night Live. She's hilarious. Uh, She also... uh, For those of you who follow her on... Who may not follow her on Twitter, she's got a great uh, Twitter presence and... She will live tweet things that she loves. Uh, back in, during the last Summer Olympics, she actually got invited to cover the Olympics uh, live oh, because yeah. she was live tweeting. She was just watching the Olympics like every single event and live <laughs> tweeting and like, you know, posting videos of her like cheering for all the athletes and team usa literally invited her to brazil um (laughs) because of twitter and she does the same thing for game of thrones where she will uh live tweet game of thrones and say like really hilarious things and i do not watch game of thrones but i will watch leslie jones watch game of thrones and um now she's in on the good place which i think we 
might have to add her on the good play, Marissa. We might have the good play pod. We might have to add her as a follow because I think, I hope she's going to start live tweeting episodes, but she is basically tweeting about how much she loves Ted Danson, how much she loves the good place and everyone. It's like a love fest on Twitter. The show is retweeting her and, and talking back to her and, uh, and Darcy Carden is in on it. And, uh, because, um, Leslie Jones says she wants to be Janet. So Darcy Carden says, let's do a freaky Friday thing. And you know, that would be great. If Leslie Jones be just showed up in an episode. <laughs> then, um, what if Mia she Bar- played God? I would be equally I would, okay. Yes, I would be totally equally okay that. with either Amy Poehler or Leslie Jones as God. Yes, equally okay. And then Nia Vardalos from My Big Fat Greek Wedding uh, also got in on it and uh, and uh, said that Ted Danson was her BFF, and they were all trying to like be friends with Kristen Bell and uh, Leslie Jones was uh, or Kristen Bell said to Leslie Jones, can we be best friends? And Leslie was like, I thought we already were. So it was, it's just, I mean, it's very fluffy and there are a lot of like screen caps. Nice to be a celebrity, huh? Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, it's fun. If you want, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll retweet. We'll uh, tweet this out for you. Celeb fans of the good place are adorably fighting. So that's, and then, uh, you know, we already did talk about the AV club, but, uh, you got a little bit of spoiler space this week from Newsweek of all places. So if you don't, want to be spoiled at all i mean this is this is very cryptic so i don't even know if we could spoil anything but uh might be a good discussion point so uh if you don't want to be spoiled then i guess skip ahead a few minutes but uh newsweek uh had an article out recently how mike Scher's the good place is revolutionizing the sitcom and it's a nice sort of overview piece of mike Scher, who actually side note this is a complete side note uh not even in this piece but uh, Mike Schur is, I just found out, um, executive producing a new ABC sitcom about a Mexican-American family. So he's bringing even more diversity to the screen. Snaps to you, Mike Schur. Um, but so they're talking about um, Mike Schur, sort of the way that he has been at the helm of a lot of the most recently successful sitcoms like uh obviously parks and recreation brooklyn 99 the office those kinds of things and so they're talking about last week we talked about how the form of the 21 minute basically the half hour sitcom sort of did a disservice to some of the story points last week and but they actually talked about and i've heard mike sure talk about this too how it actually helps them uh, and he talks about that in this uh, Newsweek article where he says that the there are so many directions to go in and you can get really heavy handed with the philosophical stuff, as I think, you know, we even have in this episode gone far afield with the philosophy of things. So he says the 21 minute episode really helps you keep everything really tight. Um, but he did at the end of the article... He does offer one tantalizing hint at a plot development. He says, pay attention to the budding relationship between Michael and Eleanor. In some weird way, he says, they are kindred spirits. And that's what we got, you know, from their sort of uh, tete-a-tete towards the end of the episode where she tells him he has to apologize to Chidi. You know, that they really are similar in a lot of ways, which she kind of realizes out loud and then says, you know, what does that say about me? And I wonder if this is going to... 
uh, end up being a plot point in terms of somehow they reach the good place and whoever's in charge says, okay, you guys can come in, but that guy right there, that's, uh, that's a demon and he can't come in. And Kristen Bell kind of putting her foot down and saying, you know, you can't let me in and not let him in or, you know, or we're not going anywhere unless you also let him in because, you know, maybe she understands him better than any of the rest of the humans. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I was even thinking about it, you know, we had talked in one of our very first episodes about, you know, the bad place gets this whole crop of new people, you know, presumably once a week or however many times, you know, there's a new crop of dead people to torture. Um, And we were sort of asking the question of why these four people and does Michael have something to do with them that isn't readily apparent and i wonder if there is some connection between the two of them now again that's me assigning human motives and also a human connection to michael who is as old as time and not a real person i was just thinking about how when he has to when he has to reboot janet he has to put in his pin and he's like oh right it's my birth year zero 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 yes (laughs) you know when he says that, when Mike Schur says that they're kindred spirits, is that in some way literal? Oh, I, I kind of feel like no, but I see where you're coming from. Um, that maybe Michael felt a tug towards Eleanor as he was building this world. I mean, at least from our perspective as the viewers, it feels like Eleanor was at the center of this plot the whole time. I mean, she's the one that he makes everything around right she's the one who has to get drunk yes you know cause a ruckus and she's the one that you know when she's about to leave yeah he says it's not gonna work without you well i think he said it's not gonna work unless all four of you are participating but yeah I, i think yeah you know she's the one who um so i so maybe the point is that you could have had eleanor and chidi just the two of them being tortured in the bad place that is masquerading as the good place. But you probably couldn't have just had Jason, right? Because he still thinks he's in the good place. (laughs) He's like, I give such great advice. I think he would have kind of bopped along fairly happily. You know, even Jason and Tahani, just the two of them. From our perspective as viewers... Eleanor is the linchpin for the quartet. But I don't know if that is correct or if that is just because the first season revolved around her. But I think there's a reason the first season revolved around her, right? So that's what I'm saying is that when he's... She is the one who gets up and admits to being the problem in the neighborhood. And that kicks off the whole second half of the season. Yeah. And I think as we've seen Eleanor develop and become self-aware she's the one who especially in this episode is is saying to michael like you got to step up and she's been that person for jason too in the past right in in the first season when he says no i'm okay i don't need to learn about ethics she kind of says hey you know dumb dumb get it together like you're a terrible person i'm a terrible person we're responsible for our actions we got to get it together but i think even now even more so with Michael, because you've been saying, Marissa, this whole time that they do kind of 
in season two, the two of them, their relationship has grown to a point where, you know, they are kind of um, the the two characters from Ocean's Eleven, or they are, they're like frenemies, right? <laughs> sort of. I think they're more just straight up friends at this point. Yeah, at this point, yeah. So I, that's, I think, I wonder when he says in a weird way they're kindred spirits or and i keep wanting to say like they're cut from the same cloth yeah they are don't you think at this point if eleanor was facing a trolley problem speaking of you know uh, scenarios that are contrived but if eleanor were facing a trolley problem and had to pick whether to save michael or tahani i feel like she would pick michael well in this iteration she actively does not like tahani right yes from what we've seen Although yeah. she's trying a little bit more in this episode because she, she's like, hey, nerds, you want to hang out? That's true. They're like, no, because they want to go have sex. But um, but I think, yeah, at this point, she probably would save Michael. Although she might also just say, but you're not a human. So, although they're all dead. So that's not even. <laughs> I, that's why I said it's contrived. It's not. Yeah, evil. yeah, yeah. But anyway, I just thought that was interesting. That was an interesting little bit from him. Uh, that I think I'm always on the lookout now because he does say like the problem with, with, you know, you can get away with one twist because no one sees it coming. But then once you do a twist, everyone thinks that everything you do is going to be a twist. So I might be reading way too much into this. That's another reason that I think that Michael's apology was sincere at the end of that episode, because if we're going to be like, ha ha, triple, double, quintuple, quintuple cross, you know, Michael is really an agent, blah, blah, blah. Like that's nobody, nobody wants that. Yeah. I mean, though, I I think the only thing left for me in this episode is, uh, and, and the AV club review does talk about this is. Uh, we didn't get anything from Vicky, and I would have liked to have a moment uh, at the end of the episode where we saw Vicky reacting to the earthquake. It wasn't clear to me why Michael was alone in his office at the end of the episode. Like, didn't Vicky and her goons take over that office? Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Did they get new office space? That seems weird. <laughs> Maybe she has, like, a bigger office somewhere. That she likes better. She's just renting some co-working space above the chowder <laughs> fountain. So we work. Um, yeah, I think. Uh, but that's. I would have liked to have some notion of her. The same way we said last week, where we wanted to have some like acknowledgement that she was suspicious. I would have liked to see that. I mean, a month too. passes, right? A month passes between most of the events in the episode and the and the end. So like, right? It's it's weird that we have now sort of gone a month so to speak, without seeing Vicky at all. Yeah. Unless, you know, maybe next week is going to be a really Vicky-heavy episode. We don't know. Although it's called Michael and Janet. Oh, it is? Yeah. I, I That's the other spoiler space thing that I have started doing is uh, looking at the episode title for the following week. So next week's episode is called Michael and Janet. So we're probably going to be getting into more of what's wrong with Janet. And uh, the following week's so. episode is called Derek. Don't know Derek? who that is. Derek, like the name Derek. Derek and the Dominoes? God, I wish. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Intriguing. Yeah, I wish it were called, what's that guy's name who figured out what happened in the Doug Forset? 
I still want yes. him. I'm still repping for him to come back. I really want that to happen or come at all. We haven't seen him at all, but uh, fingers crossed, man. Where's my boyfriend? You get so much of your husband these days. I have not seen my boyfriend in months at this point. It's really tragic. You might have to turn on your television and watch one of the hundred other things Adam Scott is doing. <sighs> That's true. <laughs> and in most of those, he's a much better person. <laughs> so <laughs> Mostly, yeah. I haven't seen Big Little Lies, but I'm assuming. I think we should wrap it up. Yeah, I think so too. All right, until next time, guys, uh, please inspect the brakes on your trolley. We'll see you next time, ding-dongs.